Let's bow for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come today and uh, we're thankful for this time together. We're thankful for this opportunity to um, encourage each other, to fellowship with each other. Lord, we do want to uh, lift up our president, First Lady, and others who are struggling with uh, COVID right now. We pray for healing and help, deliverance, and uh, just uh, uh, your touch in each of those circumstances, God. God, we pray as we look in your word now that you would uh, reveal to us, relate to us, communicate to us clearly who you have us be and uh, who you've called us to be, what you've called us to do, how you've called us to engage our culture and our world with questions about you and how you function. And uh, we love you, Lord. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is a controversial statement. It's not just controversial today. It's always been controversial. Back when it was uh, originally written, it was controversial because uh, it was written to a culture that believed that the world came to be through a, a struggle between gods, that uh, a fight had ensued between uh, several different uh, gods, and the result was uh, creation, was the, was the world, was humanity, and so forth. And so when the biblical writer sat down and, and composed those words under the leadership, the guidance of the Holy Spirit, um, he was speaking a, a truth that was important to that culture. It was a truth that remains important today. The reality of God at the center of creation and at the center of uh, the existence of all that is. Today, our struggle isn't with, or our discussion, I should say, isn't with uh, those who might believe that the world began through a battle between various gods. Our, our conversation instead is with uh, the scientific community and the question of what evidence there is for how the world came to be, how humans came to be, how the rest of creation came to be. And it's a struggle that is important. It's not something we can simply shrug off and, and, and push away and, and suggest that it's insignificant to the discussion. We argue in part for God's creation because that goes to the heart of God's intervention and engagement with our culture. To say that God is the creator is to suggest that he can and does continue to interact with creation since then, that he provides for it, he takes care of it, he guides it, and at times will step into it to cause great change to take place. We call those miracles. And so we Consider these things as something that's important. Paul says, if Christ has not been raised from the grave, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Paul is saying there that the, the, the miracle of resurrection goes to the heart of who we are. And the miracle of God's intervention in time, that, that God stepped into time, goes to the heart of who we are. And again, all of that goes back to God as creator. And so it's important that we talk about this issue. It's important that we find some set of answers for how 
our faith in God as creator meshes with or finds relationship with or connection with science and what it has to say. And what you'll find is, is a, a variety of ways in which Christians have sought to answer this question. Christians have, have sought to respond to this circumstance. You'll find those, such as uh, Anthrax and Genesis group, and, and, and those who will say that modern science is wrong, that what they have to say about cell development and, and evolutionary realities and all those sorts of things are wrong, and that there is a scientific explanation to be found within the biblical text. It, it's primitive, but it's scientific nonetheless, and that we can derive our science, we can conclude our science based upon what Scripture itself teaches. You'll find others who will take a, a, a wrote, uh, an approach in which they try and, and blend the two, theistic evolutionists and the like, who will, who will say, no, science is correct, science is all right, but what we need to understand, what we need to see is that God is behind it all. And then you'll find uh, others who would, who would try and diminish Scripture in the question at all and say Scripture has nothing to say about these issues. That it's simply uh, a book of antiquity who might point the way to God, but doesn't do so from a mindset that we would think of. All of these have some value, even, even the last of those has some value in the sense that it's trying to bring a connection, bring the, the biblical worldview and our current worldview together. It, it's trying to help us see how they might function in the same reality. And I don't intend this morning to denigrate or to downplay or to attack any of those views. But I want to argue for a, another view. I want to argue for a different approach, perhaps, than maybe you've heard or, or maybe you've encountered before, and that is simply to argue that we need to let Scripture speak where Scripture speaks and science speak where science speaks and to understand they're asking two very different questions and that they may not, in fact, interact on some of these issues. John Stott famous theologian, said, science answers questions man can answer. Scripture answers questions that no man can. And I think where we get into a struggle is where we try and have Scripture answer questions science trying to answer and science answers questions Scripture is trying to answer instead of letting them answer their own questions. Science can only speak to that which is observable. Not immediately observable necessarily. I'm not suggesting that science can't talk about the issue of origins. I'm not suggesting that science can't, can't talk about the issue of what happened in the distant past, even though it can't observe it today. I think there are observable matters that it can consider and can deal with. Max Planck said that an, uh, an experiment is a question which science poses to nature, and a measurement is a recording of nature's answer. The focus there being that science interacts with nature, whereas Scripture deals with the supernatural, that which is beyond nature. This truth is outlined for us in, in the book of Job. Job, who was struggling with how 
his view of God interacts or intersects with the reality he's dealing with in life. Ultimately, he is confronted by God, and he, he says these words, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Job acknowledges that his approach to life had been simply by observing the natural, by observing how things happen here. He believed in God. He understood God in, in many ways, but, but he only looked at what was here. God invited him to look beyond that, to, to see who God was, to, to understand that there was something bigger. And Job ultimately had to admit that that, in fact, was the case. And so as we deal with the issue of science, we deal with it in terms of the observable, recognizing that there is something bigger, and that something bigger is where Scripture comes in. The Bible is not a science book. It is not intended to answer questions the way we would answer questions. Because it's not asking the questions that scientists are asking. And at the end of the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 31, the apostle there writes, I have written these things so that you may believe in him. The apostle there is saying what? He's saying, there are a lot of things I could have told you about Jesus. There's a lot of information I left out. In fact, he says, if I, I suppose that if people wrote down everything there was to write, all the books in the world couldn't contain them. He recognizes that. He, he sees that. But he says, I wrote these things so that you might believe in Christ. You might know who he is. And I think it's important for us to understand that that really is the purpose of the Bible. That is what the Bible is seeking to answer. That is what the Bible is seeking to respond to. It's seeking to say, this is who God is. And I'm writing these things about God so that you may believe who He is, so that you may respond to who He is. The creation stories themselves, if you look at Genesis 1, which is generally the, the focus, I find it interesting that, that Genesis 2 is largely ignored in this whole debate between science and creation, even though Genesis 2 is the narrative. Genesis 2 is the history. Genesis 2 is written with the mindset of giving us the story of creation. Genesis 1, on the other hand, is, is more of a song. It's more of a hymn. It's more of a, an expression of praise that's growing out of the writer's uh, uh, pen, out of the writer's thoughts. It, it's, it's looking at creation and it's saying how great and glorious God is. And yet Genesis 1 is where the struggle is instead of the history, the, the, the narrative of Genesis 2. But Genesis 1 was written to praise God, and it was written primarily to introduce God to the world, to say this is the God that you serve. This is the God that you've been called to acknowledge. This is the God who has a claim on your life. And so when we read Genesis 1, that's the question we should be asking. What does this passage tell me about that God? What does it reveal? And there's there's a ton there. I could spend days focused just on Genesis 1. Ask anybody who's in my Genesis class that I'm teaching this semester. We spent days just on Genesis 1. But I'll just focus on three real quick here. Three, three things that Genesis 1 says about God and our relationship to Him that need to be at the center of what we understand here. Number one, it tells us that God's a God of provision. 
God provides for his creation. When you look at the days of creation, okay, have you ever paid attention to, to what's created when and, and kind of the order of things? Because there's an interesting order of things there. I, I Again, I don't think the biblical writer is trying to give us God's specific methodology. I think he's trying to make some connections here. So day one is what? Day one's light. Day one, God created light. On day two, you have the skies and the seas created. That's what it says. Day three, you have the land and the vegetation created. So days one, two, and three, light, skies and seas, land. Then you go to day four, five, and six. Day four, what's created? The sun, the moon, and the stars. Day five, the birds and the fish. Day six, the land animals and man. There's a correlation there. Day one, light. Day four, the sun, the moon, and the stars. Day five, the skies and the seas. Did I say that right? Day two, the skies and the seas. Day five, the birds and the sea creatures. Day three, the land animals. Day six, excuse me, day, man, sometimes my mind gets all wrapped up. Day three, the land. Day six, land animals and man. So you have in days one, two, and three, the habitations, the places where they're going to operate, where they're going to function. In days four, five, and six, you have the inhabitants, those who live in those areas. God provides a place, and then God fills that place. And what you have there is, is again, the writer trying to communicate meaning and purpose. And, and that's where the Bible really uh, is, is focused. What, what is our meaning? What is our purpose? And, and how does God meet that? And he's saying God doesn't make a requirement on his creation that he's not already made provision for. Now, that's important because I know several of you here are struggling with things, struggling with life in the midst of this COVID, in the midst of, of you know, the downturn in the economy, in the midst of, of so many things that are just going crazy right now in your lives, health issues and, and other things that, that, that are a part of your existence. You're, you're at least wondering on some level, where's God in the midst of all this? And why isn't he fixing things the way I would like him to fix them? Well, we talked about that in detail a couple of weeks ago, but today I just want to encourage you to, to, to say to you, God is right there with you, and God has made provision already for what you're going through. Whether you see it or not, whether you realize it or not, God is providing for you in the midst of the struggle. And the number one thing he's providing for you is himself. He is with you. And at the end of the day, that's what we need most. That's what we require most. We need him. And, and so Genesis 1, that's what it's telling us. He has provided and he is present. He is there. A second thing I think that the, the writer is trying to get across to us that, that I think is significant is that we serve the only true God. There's one God. He has revealed himself in his word, and we worship him. Now, there's a number of ways, again, that happens in Genesis 1, but let me just point out one of the more obvious ones, the ones you can see right there in the text. On day 4, in verses 14 through 19, you have 
the creation of the sun, the moon, and the stars. Now, when you read the passage, it says something kind of interesting there. It says that God created these things, and he said, it says he made the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. That's a strange way to put it. Why, why would the writer not just say sun and moon? He had those words available to him. Why didn't he say sun rules the day, moon rules the night? Why, why did he say greater light and lesser light? Because the writer's trying to be very careful with his audience. And in the era in which that passage was, was read, was written, people at that time believed in a lot of gods. Okay, They believed there, there was a different god behind everything. There was a god for storms, and there was a god for spring, and there was a god for this, and there was a god for that. And two of those gods that they worshipped, one was named Shemesh, and one was named Uraak. Now, you don't know Hebrew, probably. Some of you might. I don't know. But the word Shemesh is the Hebrew word for sun. The word Uraic is the Hebrew word for moon. So put yourself into their setting. You believe there's a God named Shemesh. You believe there's a God named Uraic. And the authorized writer of Scripture comes to you and says, on the fourth day, God created Shemesh to rule the day, the sun to rule the day, and he created Uraic to rule the night. How are you going to hear that? You're going to hear that as God creating these sub-gods, these lower gods. You got the high god, and then he created this lesser god to rule the day, and this other lesser god to rule the night. And the biblical writer doesn't want that mistake to take place. He doesn't want his readers to think God created these other gods. He wants to make sure that they understand there's one God and one God only. And so instead of using the word for sun and moon, he says greater light and lesser light. And, and he's saying there what? It's just light. It's not a God. It's just stuff. And so he's proclaiming clearly there, without coming outright and saying it, he's proclaiming clearly there's one God and one God alone. And again, that's important for us in our culture today, in our situation today, that we understand that there's one God that we bow to. There's one God that we give our attention to. There's one God that we focus on. Although we don't have Shemeshes and Uraics and so forth in our culture today, we have other gods. And those are things that we put our confidence in, things that we put our trust in rather than Him things that we give our ultimate allegiance to and all our time and effort and focus to instead of Him. And Scripture invites us to see and to understand that that's not where we need to be. There is one God. There is one to whom we bow. One to whom we surrender. The third thing that the text tells us here that I think is important is that we owe our very existence to God, and we have a very special relationship with Him. There's a, a big word in, in creation that's used in Genesis, it's used throughout the Bible, 
uh, throughout the Old Testament in terms of talking about creation. The Hebrew word is bara, B-A-R-A, bara. Okay. And it means to create. That's what it means. He created. Now, what's interesting about this word is whenever it's found throughout the Old Testament, the only subject of it can be God. That is, God alone can do this act. He's the only one who can perform this verb. Man can man is never man never creates. Man can form, man can shape, man can build, but man can't create. So it's a big word. It's talking about God's power. It's talking about how he can do things that, that nobody else can. It's talking about his his ability to to bring in some cases something out of nothing. But it, it, more more often it's just that whatever he has created owes its existence to him and him alone. Well, in chapter 1, verse 27 of Genesis, it uses that word three times in one verse. Three times it says God created. And what does it say that he created three times? Man. Three times in one verse, it says God created man. God created man and woman. God created man and woman. Three times. Why three times? The biblical writer there is repeating themselves to emphasize the point. We're not a, a mistake. We're not even the, the highest order of things that happened just as things played out. We were a special creation by God. And we have a special relationship with Him. You matter as a person. Why? Because God made you. He made you for relationship with Him. If nothing else in your life comes together, if nothing else in your life makes sense, if nothing else in your life ever resonates as, as something that communicates hope or importance or significance to you. Know this, God made you for a reason. You are important, and he wants a relationship with you. And so that's what the Bible is getting across. It's who God is and who we are. It's not asking the scientific questions of methodology. Let me, let me give you another example. That I, that I hope will kind of really bring all of what I'm saying right here together. Imagine Einstein and David standing out here some evening. And you walk up between these two great men. It's the sun setting. And you say to them, describe to me what you see, what's going on there. And Einstein breaks into an explanation of light and how Light and color are uh, connected to each other. That light refracts the different colors. And as it reflects off of different elements and different things, it gives us different hues and, and different uh, things that we see. And so what you're seeing when you see the sunset and the purples and the reds and the yellows that you see are, is the, the rays of the sun coming through the atmosphere and reflecting it off of the dust particles and the different things that are in our atmosphere to give us the color that we have. That's why when there's a fire out west, sunsets tend to be more brilliant because there's more 
things in the atmosphere that causes the light to refract in different ways. And so it becomes much more colorful. And you say, thank you, Einstein. I appreciate that explanation. You turn to David and say to King David, what is it you see? And David breaks out into song about the glory and majesty of God and his creativity and his brilliance and his imagination in building something so colorful and, and so full of variety and so pleasant to the eye and such an expression of his love and for us and his grandeur in creation. Now, which one was right? Which one correctly described the sunset to you? Both of them did. Both of them did. But it would be a mistake to take David's song and try and build a scientific explanation and methodology out of it. He wasn't trying to answer that question. And it would be a mistake to take Einstein's description and try and remove God from the process because you can mechanically explain what's going on with the different light. They're asking different questions. And so they're going to give you different answers. Not answers that are mutually exclusive or that don't, don't function together, but answers that respond to their discipline, to their questions. Both are true. And when we look at the Bible and we look at science, they don't have to be at odds with one another. They don't have to be of such a nature that we say they don't agree with each other. We can look at what science has to say and answer it and say, okay, I hear you. And we can look at what Scripture has to say and say, okay, I understand. But when we start trying to blend the two, when we start trying to use what Scripture is saying to make a scientific explanation and what science is saying to remove some of the truths of Scripture, we have crossed lines that are unhealthy to cross. But do they intersect? Is there any place where they come together? Because if their truth, if, if truth is present, is there any place that they do find agreement? And I would say, yes, there is. In Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, Paul is introducing the subject of sin. And he's talking about sin and, and its, its universal impact on all of mankind. And he starts by saying how the Gentiles, in particular, have not responded to God's revelation of himself. Then he goes on to talk about how the Jews haven't responded. But in verses 19 through 20, he, he kind of lays, lays out the, the reality that God is visible. He says, for what can be known about God is plain to them, that's the Gentiles, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. What's he saying there? He's saying that we can see God's handiwork in creation. It proclaims to us, it tells us who he is. We call that in theological circles general revelation. There's special revelation. Special revelations when God comes and he says, here I am, this is what I'm like. And he specifically, specially tells some individual, biblical writer, this is what I am. 
general revelation is how he has built himself into creation. He's not creation. He's not a part of creation. He, he is different than, he's other than, but he has built creation in such a way so that we can see him when we look at it. We can see his imagination. We can see his genius. We can see his power. We can see his majesty. We can see these attributes of God, and, and we are held responsible to those things because we can see them. But how we interpret them is, as Paul says here, driven largely by our hearts, by our reflection and our understanding of God. He says some see that and they ignore God altogether. They reject the notion of who he is and, and they trade it in their importance for his importance. They only see creation through the lens of how it affects or how it reveals themselves. But Paul says the wiser man, the truer man, the, the, the person of, of purpose and direction is the person who looks at this creation and sees God in it. So in other words, when we talk about science, when we talk about what we see, even within the scientific methodology, even within the scientific explanations, we can see something of God. Let me just read a couple of quotes from uh, a scientist named Francis Collins. Francis Collins was the head, he was the director of the Human Genome Project. Okay, His specialty is DNA, which means he's a smart guy. <laughs> okay, And he understands these things. But Francis Collins, although he believes in evolution, he sees in terms of the connection between species and so forth, he is a firm believer that God is the creator. He's a firm believer that God is present and evident and visible in those realities. Hear what he has to say. When he began his journey, he says, I was an atheist, finding no reason to postulate the existence of any truths outside of mathematics, physics, and chemistry. In other words, I had all the answers I needed in those things, I thought. But then I went to medical school and encountered life and death issues at the bedsides of my patients. Challenged by one of those patients who asked, what do you believe, doctor? I began searching for answers. And so met with the needs of humanity, met with the needs of, of, of hurt and pain and, and things that science can't explain and can't deal with, things that are beyond his mathematics and physics and chemistry, he started asking questions. And he came to some conclusions. He writes later on in a, in a different place, I would not expect religion to be the right tool for sequencing the human genome. And by the same token, would not expect science to be the means to approaching the supernatural. But on the re really interesting larger questions, such as why are we here and why do human beings long for spirituality? I find science unsatisfactory. Many superstitions have come into existence and then faded away, but faith has not. Faith in God has not faded away. It's been here for thousands of years. Why? Because it's real, he says. It's real. I see God in how things are working. He writes elsewhere, the God of the Bible is also the God of the genome. 
He can be worshipped in the cathedral or in the laboratory. His creation is majestic, awesome, intricate, and beautiful. Here's a guy who understands scientifically more than I could begin to. And he answers things from a scientific model in terms of how things happened. But beyond, behind that, and connected to that, and in relationship to that, he sees a God of genius, of intricacy, of beauty. Science can't answer the who. It can't answer the why. That's where Scripture comes in. Well, Scripture doesn't attempt to answer. It could if it wanted to, but it doesn't attempt to answer the how. That's not the important question. There is a place for those to meet. There is a place for both to coexist in agreement. What's important for us as believers is to be a people who, like the writer of Genesis, are proclaiming who God is, who are revealing His provision for us, who are saying He is God alone, who are saying that we have, as human beings, we have a special purpose, a special place in this world, in this universe. We have a reason for existing. We're not accidents of history. We were created for a relationship with a God who loves us so much that He sent His Son to die on the cross for us. And as we relate those truths, and as we tell our stories, and as we reflect upon the God who is, and the God who has revealed Himself, both generally and specifically, we will engage a culture in a way that helps them to find meaning, that helps them move away from the grief, and from the sorrow, and from the sadness, and from the loneliness that this world so often offers us. God is the answer. He's the ultimate answer. He's the final answer. But we understand that all truth is God's truth. And though we may be asking different questions and therefore coming up with different answers, at the end of the day, He is the answer. And He is where all of this ultimately needs to lead. That needs to be our message. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You. Thank You for this day. I thank You for Your creation. How awesome You are in making these amazing things. The beauty, the intricacy, the creativity that is so evident in what you've made. God, we ask that you help us to reveal these truths to a world that needs to know who you are, that needs to love you and, and relate to you, and surrender to you, find life in you, enjoy in you. God, help us to be a people who are not afraid or uh, scared to share because of our lack of knowledge in science, or even our lack of knowledge in Bible. Lord, help us to have our, la our knowledge in you. And help us simply to tell our story of what you mean to us 
to the world we come in contact with. We praise you, Lord. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.